During the Trump administration, um, a special counsel was appointed by the breathtakingly corrupt Bill Barr named John Durham to investigate the origins of Mueller's, Robert Mueller's investigation into whether or not Russia interfered in some way with the 2016 election. Recently, uh, Durham filed a pretrial motion relating to charges against a guy called Michael Sussman, who had been a lawyer for the Clinton campaign. The charges are incredibly weak. It has something to do with uh, Sussman lying to the FBI. But in order to, um, I guess, throw some red meat, Durham threw in some language, vague, legalistic jargon that the right has been running with over the last few days. And on Fox, of course, they're, they're basically saying that what Durham has accused the Clinton campaign of doing is paying a tech company to infiltrate White House servers. Actually, that, that lie was first pushed by a guy named Cash Patel, who was a Donald sycophant uh, who was installed briefly in um, the Department of Defense. So this lie is so egregious and ridiculous that even John Ratliff, another Donald sycophant who was briefly the director of national tele uh, intelligence, had to go on Fox and say that it wasn't true. I'm going to read Donald's response to all of this, though, because... Between him and Fox, that's what the people on the right are listening to. They're not listening to a retraction or a disavowal by one guy. Uh, they're listening to Tucker Carlson and they're listening to Donald Trump. Donald said this in a, I guess, official statement on his special uh, stationery. This is a scandal far greater in scope and magnitude than Watergate. And those who were involved in and knew about this spying operation should be subject to criminal prosecution. In a stronger period of time in our country, this crime would have been punishable by death. In addition, reparations should be paid to those in our country who have been damaged by this. Um, well, as far as I can tell, the only person damaged by this would have been him, but the this he's referring to didn't even happen. What's more important, though, and I want to be really clear about this, is that Donald is saying that members of Hillary Clinton's campaign, who he has falsely accused of spying, should be put to death. Now, even if they actually had committed any spying, which, again, they did not, that still would not have been a reasonable punishment. This kind of violent rhetoric is becoming more and more the norm on the right. In response to Donald's statement, Jim Jordan, that execrable enabler of child molestation, said that Donald's statement was right on target. These kinds of over-the-top calls for violence against political opponents, uh, we traditionally associate those with banana republics. Right now, though, it's become part and parcel of republicanism. It's, it's not just um, 
a trend that more and more people are um, engaging in. The calls for violence, the violent rhetoric itself, are becoming more and more extreme and more dangerous. We have uh, Congressman Thomas Massey from Texas, who recently said something like, if 30 or 40 percent of Americans believe that the government is behaving tyrannically, then they have every right to take up arms against the federal government. He went further and said that we should, we meaning those 30 or 40 percent of people who think that the government needs to be overthrown, should have enough guns to take on the United States Marines. The host who had him on his podcast threw in his two cents and said that he also believed that every American should be entitled to their own nuclear weapons because that's precisely what the founders meant when they wrote the Second Amendment. Uh, he didn't say that last part, but I, they, this obviously seems to be what these people think. So we have a sitting congressman advocating for the violent overthrow of the United States government. We have the disgraced former occupant of the Oval Office saying that it's not just reasonable, but necessary that people be put to death because they did something he didn't like, which, by the way, they didn't even do. And now we have the Republican National Committee codifying in, a, in an official formal resolution that the violence on January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Remember when during the first debate uh, with Biden, Donald was asked to disavow um, the Proud Boys? And what he said instead was, stand back and stand by? Well, they were listening, and that message he sent them that night led them to the Capitol on January 6th, and now those actions, that violence, that incitement, the injuring of 140 Capitol and D.C. police officers, the deaths are all being characterized as legitimate political discourse. These aren't isolated incidents. They're not. I mean, we see this happening time and time again. And one of the problems is it's happening without any pushback. I don't see any of these people getting censured. We have anti-Islamic rhetoric that is directly putting Muslim members of Congress in danger. So we need to understand that all of these tactics are part of a, a larger authoritarian strategy. It's to incite their side, and it's to demoralize and destabilize, actually, the rest of us. And then there's, a, there's another facet to this that I think we really need to be paying attention to. Their paranoia, or their pretense at being paranoid, <laughs> is ramping up as well. We have uh, Representative Troy Nels, I think his name is, who has accused Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol of Police of spying on him. We have um, Green, I won't say her whole name because she's so repulsive, uh, 
she accused, she actually accused a cabal of cold Spanish soup directed by Nancy Pelosi of spying on members of Congress, of spying on their legislative work, of spying on her staff and spying on American citizens, all of which, of course, especially the part about Gaspacho, is completely absurd. We now have Senator Marco Rubio, probably the most spineless creature this side of amoebas, claiming that the purpose of January 6th, of the January 6th committee, is simply to embarrass and harass and smear Republicans. To which I say, if you're a sitting member of Congress who participated in any way in the January 6th insurrection, whether by refusing to cast your vote to have the election certified or by inciting the crowd by giving them a white power salute, right, Josh Hawley? Or by lying time and time again over the last year that the January 6th insurrection was even a big deal, then you know what, Senator Rubio, you deserve to be exposed, humiliated, smeared, and hopefully held accountable for that. Of course, Rubio then went on to accuse Biden of sending crystal meth and crack pipes to the black communities in the country. Um, I think he said that it was for uh, racial equity. Uh, to say it's wrong is, 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 not a, is an understatement. This is obscene and it's racist. These aren't dog whistles anymore. It's another tactic in this overall strategy of demoralizing, destabilizing us, and attacking the other in a way that is dangerous and that is only going to get worse. We now have 14 states with laws forbidding schools, K through 12 schools, to teach critical race theory, which, by the way, they never did. Donald has said that he wishes Joe Rogan hadn't apologized for using the N-word. Ron DeSantis, mass murderer and governor of Florida, agreed and also suggested that Joe Rogan not only shouldn't apologize, but should be very proud, I suppose, of his use of the N-word. So all of this is of a piece. The right is using violent rhetoric to change the subject, they're using threats of violence to intimidate their opponents. And they're using virulent racism to divide us against ourselves. Because remember, th these aren't dog whistles. They're being openly, blatantly, unabashedly racist. And it's for a reason. They're using these tactics because it's all they've got. But they're running with it. And they know it works because it worked for five years. If we're not careful, it's going to influence the outcome of the 2022 election in a way we're not going to like. So I would suggest that it's time that the Democratic Party stop bringing a butter knife to a gunfight 
Because if the right is bringing bazookas and AK-47s, we need to bring a bunch of fucking nukes. Because that's where they're heading. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest uh, a Daily Beast columnist, commentator, frequently on MSNBC, uh, recovering attorney, which I'm curious about, and um, also the author of the recent book, Go Back From Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on becoming American, which is a phenomenal book, and we are going to spend a lot of time talking about it. So Fareed Zakaria, thank you so much for joining me today. I am very happy to be here. I'm glad CNN gave me this leave to talk to my favorite Trump. Uh, we love Trump at CNN. It's great for ratings. So I'm hoping... I, and I also have adopted an American accent now just to make myself blend more in this moment where people like me are told to go back to where we come from. So I appreciate you having me, Mary. You guys at CNN really do love some of those Trumps. But seriously, <laughs> let's take the mask off. It's Wajahat Ali. It's actually is- Sanjay Gupta. No, let's oh. take the mask, mask off. <laughs> I actually God, got... so I was confusing. Tell- <laughs> Mary said this because in the, in the Riverside uh, uh, podcast chat that we're doing, instead of saying Wajahat Ali, I wrote down Fareed Zakaria 2.0 because I, I knew she'd enjoy it. Uh, but I get mistaken for... I've been mistaken recently for Sanjay Gupta. And someone said, I love your medical analysis on TV. Thank you so much. And all I, I just nod my head. What I do is I, don't, I never get offended. I just, I just agree. So I say, yes, thank you. And then I got uh, someone confused me for Mehdi Hassan. He's British, by the way. And I said, yes, thank you. I'm a very good debater. And then the last one was Hassan Minaj. He goes, we loved your show on Netflix. I'm like, thank you. I work very hard. So I just accept. Whatever South Asian you want to throw at me, I will be that person. I will cosplay. You know, it's not so much the fact that, say, Medi's British or whatever. It's like you got you look nothing like any of them. That's the thing that's kind of it's it's, it's so American. Uh, yeah. You look ways. like Megan Kelly to me. It's like all the same. All, all you, oh, okay. All you Those white are fighting women. words. Fighting, <laughs> fighting words. words. <laughs> you couldn't have picked a different white woman. It was woman. trigger. I, I, I found the whitest woman I could. Like literally my brain said, who's the whitest woman I could find? And I swear to God, Megan yeah. Kelly just like with, with like a black Santa Claus and a headlock. She just showed up. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm Mary Trump. You're Wajah Ali. I think we've established our identities well enough. It only so took three can... minutes. <laughs> but I just want to clarify something. Uh, you were recently a guest on one of my favorite podcasts, Marissa Rothkopf's The Secret Life of Cookies. And I actually told her to introduce you as Farid Zakaria. No, she, she so, told me. She confessed yeah. later on. She, after the podcast, first of all, she's lovely. You guys should listen to her podcast. She's a lovely, sweet person and very smart. And then she bakes cookies and like tasty treats. And then she eats them. And then you're like, I want to eat that uh, by the end of the podcast. But then at the end of the podcast, she goes, Mary, Mary told me that, you know, I should introduce you as Fareed Zekri and you wouldn't be offended. And you'd laugh. And I was like, she was correct. She goes, yeah. phew, I took, I took a risk. Well, I read your book which is hysterical. Uh, so I was pretty sure you could handle that kind of humor to the extent that it's funny. <laughs> but you could also tell, see, the thing is you could also tell it was done in good spirit and in, and, and, and in the commentary and vein of what the book 
or why I mention it, right? Like oftentimes, right. you're right. The, the ugliness of it is you all look the same. Uh, why should we bother differentiating you? We're going to lump you all and all of you are going to be flattened and all you blacks are the same and all you Muslims are the same and all you browns are the same. And then we're just going to essentialize you by your worst traits and you'll be the perpetual villain or the sidekick or the stereotype or the punchline. And your job is just to take it. And you should be grateful that you were, were well, you, you should even be grateful that we're giving you a speaking part. That's sure. the insidious aspect of it. Or allowed to stay here. And one of my favorite uh, ways to undermine individuals is to make them totally responsible for things that other people who happen to look, you know, have the same skin color or share the same religion, you get, you have to answer to that. You know, you have to condemn Muslim extremism. Why? <laughs> you know, it's just another way of undermining the individual and disempowering people. Oh, yeah. It's completely flattens them, reduces them to stereotypes, takes away their complex history, their unique narratives, right? And, and with Muslims specifically, what you said is what people don't realize is what's happened, especially after 9-11. And, and I mentioned this, I spent, spent time in the book about the, the moderate Muslim, right? Where is this magical moderate Muslim? This yeah. unicorn that lives in Narnia and drinks like halal root beer with Elvis. Why can't there be more? How come you haven't condemned violent acts done by violent people you've never met? And so anytime you see something happening, this just happened last month. Remember when that one gentleman from uh, uh, England, uh, this one British Muslim guy that no one knows, even his family disavowed him, comes from... London, goes to New York, then ends up in Dallas. And because he was animated by anti-Semitism, which flattens all Jewish people, he goes, let me now hijack the synagogue. And maybe, just maybe, by hijacking the synagogue, the Jews, in quotation marks, will then release Afia Siddiqui, this, uh, this prisoner that some people think is a political prisoner, but she was, you know, a violent extremist or identified as a violent extremist, one of the, the uh, prosecutors during the war on terror. She was you know, uh, convicted, and she, he thought by taking over the synagogue that I will somehow free Afia Siddiqui because the powerful Jews will release her, right? And what mm -hmm. was interesting was because, simply because I'm a Muslim, Mary, number one, and because 10 years ago, the right-wing trolls found an article that I did not write on Afia Siddiqui that I simply retweeted, that alone was evidence that I was a terrorist sympathizer. This happened just last month. And then I had to then condemn her and condemn him. And I was like, I don't know this dude. And how come you don't ask like a white, like the number one terrorist uh, threat in America is white supremacist uh, terrorism that no one talks about for some reason. And just very quickly, let me give you an analogy. Suppose there's a mass shooting done by a white dude. Probably is going to happen in a week or two. I hope I'm wrong. But that seems to be the trend. Or tomorrow. Yeah. Chad, who's eating flaming Cheetos and watching Netflix, is not asked to condemn violent acts done by this violent white person, nor is he expected to be all of a sudden like Arnold Schwarzenegger and go kill and hunt down white supremacists. But as a Muslim for the past 20 years, we are often uh, given this, this lovely role of um, being the moderate only if we preemptively condemn violent acts and we have to condemn hard enough, fast enough, strong enough, and smart enough. And even when we condemn Mary... It's never enough because then I become the, the extinct, nearly extinct moderate unicorn. And then I get asked, but how about the rest of the Muslims? And that's how you get flattened. And, and one of the observations you made that, that is 
should be obvious on its face, but clearly isn't because of the flattening that that uh, white people in America seem to require of other races and religions, is that there's no such thing as a Muslim community. That's right. There are Muslim communities. You know, there's no, it's not a monolithic thing. Uh, so that's just another way to misunderstand or not have to um, deal with the complexity of the fact that Muslim people are from many different places. They have many different traditions. Uh, you know, they have different political ideologies on and on and on. And by the way, <laughs> we're talking about Americans here. So uh, it's just quite something how that, and I don't think that's just something that exists on the right. I think it's a, a knee-jerk thing yeah. that has been allowed to perpetuate because of this country's terribly complicated and tragic history with race. Yeah, I mean, look at Bill Maher, right? Like just two weeks ago, we we're talking about that. And he, again, gives ISIS and Al-Qaeda exactly the legitimacy they've been craving for by ceding the ground to them and saying that, no, 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 look, this is Islam. These are Muslims. And now people often say on the left, oh, Waj, you're being too sensitive. You darkies and you Muslims, just get over it. Bill Maher hates all religions. And I say, no, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Listen no. to his words specifically again and again and again. He talks about Muslims. They're the, like the mafia. They bring that desert stuff from the, uh, to the West. Look, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, this is traditional. Again and again and again. And you sit there and you watch Bill Maher's show as, as he goes on these rants for like the last 15 years. And you sit there and you just replace Muslim with any other group. And you're like, would this be allowed? Would liberals just sit there quietly? And the only liberal guests who have ever spoken up when he goes on one of these rants are Batman Ben Affleck, where there was a huge squabble, if you guys remember that, right? And Bill Maher was shocked as to why Ben Affleck was standing up for Muslims and Arabs, which he uses interchangeably, by the way. <laughs> Only 20% of Muslims in America are Arab. Most of them are Christian, by right. the way, Arabs here yep. in this country. And then also it was Glenn Greenwald before he became a complete freak. The only two people who's, who challenged Bill Maher. And so when you have even Bill Maher, who I know increasingly the left has become disenchanted with him, but let's be honest— he has represented the, I guess, center-left or the Democratic establishment-left for a long time. He is rewarded by HBO for saying this stuff about Muslims, right, that he would not say about anyone else, where literally he's saying that, no, 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 Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Osama, that's Islam. But the, 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 the Muslims like Wajahat Ali, the 4 million Muslim Americans, or the overwhelming majority that is the victim of terrorism and has fought back against this extremism, the victims of the war on terror— who reject this extremism, they're the outliers. And so if you're getting this from the left, and it's like, you know, me and Mehdi, Mehdi Hassan's a friend of mine, we kind of said this publicly on his show and we joke about it, that I think anti-Muslim bigotry is the last safe space for bigots of all stripes. Like, there won't be a penalty. And even if you see with yeah. Ilan Omer, right, regardless of what you think about her politics, like the, the shit that she gets, you're like, who else gets this? And of course right. she gets it because she's a black woman. She's yep. Muslim and wears a hijab, and she was originally a refugee. And That's so right. then you're seeing, ah, what are the consequences of making fun of one group, but then another group, eh, you get a slap on the wrist. Yeah, and as far as Bill Maher is concerned, I haven't watched him in I don't know how long because he's been anti-Islamic forever. And like you said, that 
that doesn't get noticed. It's only now that he's kind of going after the left and being praised by Fox News that people are starting to have a problem with him. And it reminds me of what just happened with Joe Rogan. That all started because of his uh, COVID disinformation and his uh, problem with vaccines. But he should have been, this should have happened a long time ago because he's such a fucking racist. Like consistently, they had to to remove like more than 70 episodes. It wasn't just one, 70 episodes on their own, they're removed. And it wasn't just like, it wasn't just him using the N word, right? It was him inviting eugenicists, like people who are literally saying, oh, black people are genetically inferior and white people, when they moved away from Africa, they're like, what? This is Nazi stuff. And then, you know, comparing black people to Black and of the Apes. And then, so the question then for me is, why are these people consistently rewarded? Who gets to fail up in America? Who gets a pass and who truly gets canceled, right? And so yeah. I think that's what's so interesting is the people who complain the most about cancel culture are the ones canceling everyone else. Uh, books mm-hmm. during Black History Month are apparently more dangerous to conservative parents than their kids getting COVID too soon. Or getting shot. <laughs> or getting shot. Yeah, we're at anniversary of Parkland. Fourth year, four-year anniversary of Parkland. And in America, you know, I don't Mary, I think you and I growing up, we never had... Uh, shooter drills right we had like fire drills Mm -hmm. and i got three kids now my kids are in virtual school because my daughter is immunosuppressed but Mm -hmm. i've heard as a parent like this just shocked me right because my kids are seven five and two so you know i've only heard about fire drills but my parent like my fellow parents are so casual like oh yeah my kid did a shooter drill i'm like what's a shooter drill oh yeah yeah they do shooter drills in anticipation of a mass shooting and what kids should do in case they're one of their one of their classmates is a shooter or there's a shooter that just you know and we kind of say this so casually in America and the reason why I'm mentioning this is because this is not normal right so the threats that are actually real in this country the ones we choose to ignore the people who perpetrate it, the ones who are seen as lone wolf and moderate, and oh, they have economic anxiety. Oh, they're ordinary citizens engaged in a legitimate discourse on January 6th versus the black and brown communities who just get pummeled by the system. War on drugs, war on crime, war on terror. And, you know, we always joke because you have to have some dark humor. I just did this on Twitter. Huh, could you imagine a bunch of black and brown truckers who decided to completely disrupt the Western economy and the supply chain for several weeks because we didn't want to get vaccines. What would happen to us? Yeah, or imagine if on January 6th it had been Antifa, which is a fictional thing, and and, and everybody at January 6th was black or brown. BLM yeah, protesters. Yeah, we could do this forever, right? And everybody yeah. would be dead. Yo, chalk basically. lines. We'd be chalk lines. Yep, you would be chalk I, w- I would want to have a very theatrical chalk line, like a very melodramatic one with my hands like to the, you know, sprawled out. You should work know. on that. Like yeah. sort of instead of a shooter drill, you could do a chalk outline yeah, we, drill. We, this, this is the dark humor that you need in life is like my friends and I, we practice our choreographed ch- chalk line. So when we get, when we get like, like that her- heroic Michael Bay death, slow motion, like no. So when they, when they do the chalk line, they're like, wow, that's a, that's a very impressive chalk line death. Yeah, I think we we can start a new tradition. Yeah. All the marginalized communities. Have you practiced your chalk line death? Ah, oh, no. And like they show me. And like that's too rusty. You need more more fingers, more fingers, more pizzazz. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Um, <laughs> seriously, I want to get back to something 
you said earlier, because I, I think it is at the heart of a lot of what we're dealing with right now uh, in terms of terrorism on American soil. Mm. Uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of people committing terrorist acts in this country are white men, largely Christian, if not almost exclusively Christian. Um, now, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but the FBI put out a report saying that. Specifically, mm. that was the threat, not external Islamic terrorism, but white male Christian domestic terrorism. Mm. And the Republicans did not allow that report to be so about more than released. 10 years ago, right? It was, it was yeah. more than 10. It was a long time ago. It was a DHS ago. report uh, written by uh, Daryl Johnson, who then wrote a book about his f failed attempt to warn America. Uh, I think the right. book is called uh, 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 Homeland. I, I'll, I'll find out. I have it back here. I'll find out. But yeah, but Daryl Johnson of the DHS at that time under the Obama administration talked about the rising threat of right-wing extremism and that report was shelved because yep. conservatives and the Republican Party realized they hit too close to home and would have hurt them politically. Obama was trying to get some bipartisan support for Obamacare at that time. So Democrats being Democrats, bringing a pencil to a friggin' gunfight, you know, said nothing. And Daryl Johnson was so disgusted that he went to Wired and Spencer Ackerman then kind of did the expose. And then Daryl Johnson, I'll get the right name of the book, wrote this really good book about it, how this is the number one threat. But even in 2009, there you go, Mary, it was deliberately covered under the rugs by the conservative movement. And then we found out from the whistleblower just a couple of months ago, uh, who it was in the Trump administration and DHS, that Donald Trump's administration deliberately downplayed the threat of white supremacist terrorism and in, instead increased the fake threat of Antifa and BLM. Voila. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's worse because now they're not even going after potential mm. terrorist acts. They're making shit up. And it is... It's, I know it shouldn't be surprising, but it still is shocking that we have a, a, a political party mm. over, what, 13, maybe 13 years ago, actually admitting that we can't release this report about white supremacist domestic terrorists because that's our base. <laughs> it's going to hurt us politically. And that's even more the case now, right? Um, I mean, so, they're ordinary citizens. I mean, you know, I think I, I tweeted this again today, right before doing your show, and it just sh shows you the the kind of, the kind of like uh, just utter lack of memory that we have in America, where like the, the attention span of gnats, and I do not want to disrespect gnats, that we, we, you know, it's like if it bleeds, it leads, and there's chaos, and let's move on, let's forget, and the, in this ridiculous both sides false equivalence that we do, where we cede the ground to a increasingly extremist minority. And literally, we always have to bend the knee for them, especially media mm -hmm. institutions, corporate institutions, political institutions. Like, we're all hijacked by them, right? Case in mm -hmm. point, it was just last week, Mary, where the Republican National Committee, not Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Greene, not Paul Gosar, not some right-wing freak, the Republican National Committee on its own proactively decided to issue a statement that said the January 6th violent uh, coup that was done by violent insur insurrectionists that let five people dead, including one cop, ordinary citizens, 
engaging in legitimate political discourse. And people forget, they officially censured Liz Motherfucking Cheney. Her last name is Cheney. She was the number three ranking Republican with the last name Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. What was the crime, oh, Mary Trump, of these two conservatives? You know, Liz Cheney, who voted for Trump 93% of the time, and Kinzinger, who went 95% of the time. Their crime was that they said, you know, a violent mob overtaking the U.S. Capitol for the first time in nearly 200 years, uh, trying to overturn a legitimate election, and then trying to chase me and my colleagues down and trying to kill us. That's a step too far. And they censured them. And so I sit there, like, sometimes I think you and I need to talk and people, you know, your listeners need this, is that we're not being gaslit, we're not crazy, we have every right to be frustrated, and we're not dealing with a normal political party. We're dealing with, in my opinion, and you might disagree with me, I've said this for the past year, a radicalized, weaponized, pro-death cult. It's a counter-majoritarian force that is actively attacking democracy, and they want minority rule at all costs. Yeah, that they're fascists because they're using, they're justifying and legitimizing using violence as a tactic mm-hmm. to maintain um, minority power. Right. They use propaganda. They have a propaganda wing in Fox and OAN and Newsmax. All of uh, it. Podcasts, online magazines, oh, all of it. The so entire ecosystem. I, I have a newsletter called The Good in Us, which is getting harder and harder to hang on to. <laughs> but the the some good in some of us? <laughs> the good in some of us. Yeah. yeah, I should, you know what? I should rename it The Good in Some of Us. And I, I, every week I kind of sum up what's going on the bestseller list and the top podcasts, top substacks. And I call it hashtag get the fascists off the list mm. because they dominate. Every single space except the New York Times bestseller list. It's, it, I know, again, it shouldn't be shocking. It isn't shocking, but because a lot of times, especially in Facebook, the algorithm favors these people. Yeah. Um, but it just clarifies for me, and you referred to this earlier how ill-equipped the Democratic Party seems to be for this fight we're in. Yeah. Because they continue to treat it like everything's fine, that that this is a a normal administration that followed another normal administration. And that's what drove me crazy about the Virginia gubernatorial race mm. between uh, Glenn Youngkin and McCullough. I almost said Terry Jones, but <laughs> I don't think the guy from Monty Python. No, he passed for, away. Rest in peace, Terry Jones. He we did. will not we will not sully your memory. No, but it would have been a much more interesting race. Much um, funnier. And he would have been a much better governor yeah. than Glenn Youngkin has proven Ru- to be. Would have run a better campaign. Well, yeah. But you know, whenever anybody says that, and McAuliffe, yeah, was uninspired, whatever, but like people said this about Hillary Clinton all the time. It's like yeah, a bad campaign compared to whom? But let's leave that aside for a second. The thing that that maddened me is that Glenn Youngkin got through that campaign without anybody once referring to him as a racist. How is that possible? So I'm here in Virginia, uh, and I called that Youngkin's going to win, and Democrats here said, no, he's not. And then McAuliffe, uh, it's his for the taking. And I said, you are not paying attention 
to the fact that they are trying to rebrand Trump 2.0 through Yunkin. It's going to work. They're going through schools. They're doing the dog whistle. People are terrified. Uh, suburban parents are terrified when it comes to race, conversation about race, and also LGBTQ. Let's not forget, it started with the transgender bathroom stuff. And, and, and by the way, the county where it began, all this began, is one of the wealthiest counties in America, and which was one of the last to desegregate in America, right? So oftentimes when you look about the common man in Main Street, it's always like these rich like very well-organized hubs of conservative parents, right, who are very mm-hmm. terrified of certain elements coming in. And that's why schools have always been a fantastic uh, launching pad for these type of culture wars, right? Because it always goes back to the dog whistle of we can't r- let the urban element come in, black people, brown people, and now LGBTQ. And so the reason why Yunkin was allowed to waltz in is because the Democratic Party, the Democratic movement are like, oh, we got this. We don't have to counter this message is not going to work. And I wrote an article. I said, this is exactly the same type of message that they had with the anti-Sharia threat in 2010, right, right before the midterm elections. A manufactured crisis, a problem in search of a solution. And this time they're going after our kids and using race. It's going to be even more successful. You need right. to develop a counter message. No counter message, Mary, right? The no. only message was Trump. He's like Trump. But then, hey, Youngkin comes in with a smile and a vest. And what saved him in Virginia, ladies and gentlemen, is that it was very close. Oh, God, Trump got baited. Trump was about to come and campaign with Youngkin. I'm telling you, if Trump would have come here, flipped. It would have been McAuliffe by two. Youngkin would have lost. Trump doesn't come. Youngkin gets saved. And instead, he's like, oh, here's this smiling, young, wealthy, uh, you know, uh, uh, upstart who has decided to shake it up and go for, like, school choice. And meanwhile, you're like, huh. So his school choice and his last ad, which drove it home, is banning books like Toni Morrison's Beloved. And and look what happened. We kept saying it. You're not taking the CRT threat seriously. Boom. He wins. Republicans realize they got a winning they got a winning message. CRT threat becomes book bans, becomes Stop the Woke Act, becomes Don't Say Gay in Florida. Now you're going after uh, Holocaust studies. Now you're going after... You could pretty much cancel Black History Month under the auspices mm-hmm. of the anti-CRT ban. I'm not saying this to be like, you know, darkly humorous. Literally, all of Black mm-hmm. History Month could be canceled. You're going after feminist studies, Handmaiden's Tale. And if you step back and look at it, what are you seeing? The stories and narratives of the rest of us have to be erased, suppressed, and censored in order for the white Christian narrative to remain on top. And you're seeing that microcosm play out with the CRT ban, and you're seeing that play out literally across the political spectrum and cultural spectrum of America. There can only be one protagonist, white Christian male, everything else dominates us, equality is oppression, you're coming after us, you're trying to replace our narrative, we're not going to expand America and the uh, American narratives. Instead, we're going to censor and lift up the American myth where anyone can make it if you just bootstrap. And by the way, the person who fertilized this country's soil just happens to be your friendly neighborhood white man named Chet and Glenn. Thank you for yeah, coming to my I, TED Talk. You asked me a simple question. Was, I went on a rant. I think we're done here. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but there's, there's nothing I can disagree with there. The only thing I would add is... Shout out to the media for also failing miserably in covering Virginia as well, Um, because I I think that the media now does not think that it's their job to educate people. That's true. (laughs) We see this time and time again, Um, most recently with uh, Build Back Better 
the media complaining that it's too complicated. People don't even know what's in this bill. Well, isn't it your job to tell them? Maybe break it down. Well, that's uh, the failure of media institutions, right? Like I, I mentioned yeah. in the book, also there's in the last, the second to last chapter, I talk, I call it some of my colleagues, and I said that you know if Trump, let me put it this way, if Trump ran on a white person ban, <laughs> okay, instead of a Muslim ban, if Trump ran on like policies that directly affected many of our colleagues in media institutions who are the gatekeepers, if it affected them, their grandmother, their grandfather, their wives, their children, Trump would not be elected, ladies and gentlemen. It wouldn't be a different game. It would have been, it wouldn't have been different, like just not even different, like completely different sport whatsoever, right? Because they would mm-hmm. not have given him the, the leeway. They would not have given him the press. They would not have invited him on SNL. Jimmy Fallon would not have like, you know, uh, said, oh, silly Donald, let me just touch your hair. Uh, I, Z- Jeff Zucker probably wouldn't have given him that same advice. Les Moonves mm-hmm. would not have said openly, Trump is bad for America, but he's great for business. Literally, that's what right. Les Moonves said. And Jeff Zucker said yes. that also. He does not regret it at all. Jeff Zucker helped make Donald Trump, but because of the ratings, yep. Mary. And so, you know, all these people are releasing books right now, withholding information that you would think might help national security. I'm talking about, of course, uh, uh, Maggie Aberman and also Bob Woodward. You know, if for, to them, it was a game. To them, right. it's great ratings. Uh, I could get on TV. Um, he just has, you know, it's just economic anxiety. He's having a racial trip up. He's having a racial flare up. Uh, the system can hold him. And don't, don't you worry. But can you imagine, Mary, if it actually affected them? What would they have done? What would the coverage have been like? And I believe the coverage would have, I don't think he would have gone the coverage to even become president. And now that he became president, like I mentioned in the book, some of my colleagues were like, well, at least we get on TV more. And I'm like, well, democracy is getting destroyed, but like, we get on TV more. At least we got book sales. And then so now you're at this point now where you're mentioning the failure of media is, I believe, and I've said this, and I think you've said this, and other people have said this, that the job of media institutions in America is to be biased in favor of democracy. Right. You have to be biased in favor of democracy against fascism. That is okay. That is allowed. And if you cede the ground and allow... I remember when I was on CNN for a year, we used to have, look, I, I don't mind debating uh, anyone on climate change and gun control and national security. That's fine. But I had to spend six minutes of airtime, which is precious airtime, as you know. Four minutes of it got hijacked and derailed by a Trumper that not only I had to debate him, but then the moderator, the anchor had to come in. And I'm sitting there like, we just lost six minutes of precious airtime on a new show where I'm supposed to inform the public, but instead we're ceding ground to disinformation. But that's a huge part of the problem. It's not Maggie Haberman, as awful as she is. It's not... Maggie um, Haberman. <laughs> it's not Joe Rogan. Actually, Ellie Mistel said this about Joe Rogan. He's not the problem. It's the millions of people who listen to him. That's right. And it's not like he, he transformed them into racist, misogynistic homophobes. They, they went in search of him. Same thing with people who voted for Donald, uh, for large part. With Haberman, it's not that she's unethical, which is, uh, you know, oh, well, too bad. She's an access journalist in that way. She wrote 200, in excess of 250 articles about Hillary Clinton's emails and hasn't said a peep about stuff that was going on in Donald's administration that was infinitely worse because she wanted to write a book. Why? She works for the New York Times. Mm. Do they not have any ethical standards? I mean, do they think that her writing an article about the fact that Donald 
I can't even believe I have to say this, chewed up and swallowed <laughs> classified information, ripped stuff into shreds that his aides that had to tape back together, and also clogged toilets in the White House. Totally normal behavior. He had economic anxiety. That's what happens when you have economic yeah. anxiety. You eat paper. Exactly. I mean, it is actually a, a psychiatric disorder. Yeah. Uh, eating non-food. It, 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 it's only substances. classified paper that incriminates you of your criminal activity. By the way, only those. But it wasn't intentional. Oh, That's no, my no, favorite no, part. No, no, no. It, you can't prove intent. It was a flare-up. I mean, it was a flare-up. <laughs> but does the does the New York Times think that that story, those stories, wouldn't have sold papers? You, this, this is the this is the thing. You, you've touched upon it. The color that ultimately matters the most in America is the color green. If you look at Rogan. The, the head of Spotify, the billionaire, the Swedish billionaire by the name of Daniel Ek. He's pretty much very just, white. Yeah, pretty much just said, uh, yeah, it's worth it. $100 million, right? Yeah, and, yeah okay. Uh, when it comes to Facebook, Zuckerberg knows that he will lose millions of uh, Facebook users if he enforces his own terms and agreements against the right-wing media ecosystem that uses Facebook to promote disinformation hate crimes, fascism, right? Les Moonves, I want to, again, I think this quote is so pure when he was yeah. the head of CBS, openly said, you could Google this, go to the Hollywood Reporter article where he says, Donald Trump might be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. Zucker right. admitted it when Ben Smith interviewed him. Like now after the fact, in 2020, do you regret helping create Donald Trump? Nope. Great for ratings, right? And so at the yeah. end of the day, New York Times realizes it's two things. Number one, Great ratings, great access, great eyeballs, great numbers, great hits. Number two, the institutional failure of America, corporate, media, financial, where we treat a radicalized, weaponized minority as somehow being a good faith other, the yin to the yang, the both yep. sides. And I'll just show you how it's nonsense really quickly. 50-50 Senate, it's a split country. It's both sides. The 50 Republicans, ladies and gentlemen, represent 40 million less Americans. Donald Trump, who lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, decided to put three white right-wingers on the Supreme Court. So now the Supreme Court, which is supposed to represent all of us, is hijacked by a right-wing extremist minority. Just go down the list. And so what the media does instead of—and this is where the media fails— Instead of calling them out as a right-wing minority extremist, uh, extremist minority, they do the both sides, and they frame it as a both sides, which then, as we have seen study yeah. after study after study, actually harms democracy, harms the truth, and actually promotes disinformation. Because if you do a both sides analysis, very quickly, they did a both sides analysis of climate change, and now we have 99% of scientists who believe in climate change. Let's see the ground and give equal space to this one crank. What happened as a result? Climate change disinformation. Same thing yep. happens with vaccine disinformation. Same thing yep. happens with insert any of your Republican disinformation. And now, quick case in point, this Durham nonsense that's happening right now as you and I are speaking. I'm sitting yeah. there thinking to myself, right wing one, this non-story is now a major story. Everyone's talking about it. They're not leading with, this is, a <laughs> this is bullshit. This is why it's bullshit. Instead, they're like, the right wing is alleging. And then all of a sudden, if you're an average Jose reading that, what are you thinking? Oh, look, Hillary Clinton. She did something shady. We did their work for them again. Yeah, we're, we seem to be quite good at that. And what's at least the media, not that this is comforting, but at least they have 
an agenda that makes sense, as cynical as it is, it's all about the bottom line for them. What is it with the Democratic Party, though? You just listed probably a tiny, tiny percentage of the egregious acts the Republican Party has committed against this country that they've gotten away with, that the media have allowed them Mm. to get away with and help them promote. And yet um, we have a commission set up to investigate the issue of (laughs) ways in which we can maybe kind of perhaps someday uh, reform the Supreme Court. Maybe, inshallah. Inshallah, God willing. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, Really? You can't just concede that this court is so illegitimate. I mean, it is up there with the court that made the Dred Scott decision, for God's sake. Yeah, Plessy. It's a Plessy and Dred court. It's a Plessy versus Ferguson court. Absolutely. It's like every bad court we've had throughout this I mean, country. Just look history. at Clarence Thomas. His wife, Ginny Thomas, is a right-wing hack who helped, and I quote, Trump purge, advised Trump on helping him purge his administration of those who are disloyal. And also assisted initially in the Stop the Steal rally, which became the January 6th violent insurrection, and then belatedly apologized. She is the wife of Clarence Thomas, who has not and recused she financed, himself. Financed 80 buses to, to take oh, them to there you the, go. the uh, insurrection. Yes, and Clarence Thomas doesn't have to. And he won't. They could have dozens of cases come before him that involve. Uh, the insurrection and to which his wife is directly and indirectly connected. And he doesn't have, there is no ethics committee telling Supreme justices what they have to do, which is why Amy Coney Barrett didn't recuse herself when an organization that put seven figures into getting her appointed to Mm. the Supreme court um, that I don't remember the case, but um, you know, it was they were the defendants, and she didn't recuse herself. Yeah. So it, it's a right wing. So it's a, two things really quickly. It's a good example, and I just want people to to focus on this for one second before we talk about the the failure of the Democrats. Is the right wing movement in America is a very incestuous, tight, connected group. Funders, the grassroots churches, uh, the Federalist Society. Uh, media moguls, and so forth. It's so tight that you see this dark money being pumped into the Federalist Society, which then creates its list of right-wing hacks. Barrett was on it. Kavanaugh was on it, right? You see in the confirmation hearing of Kavanaugh, Laura Ingram, a Fox News host, just magically appears in the room, right? You see the revolving door between Fox News and the White House. You see Clarence Thomas, his wife, literally is a right-wing extremist activist, as you said, funded the buses. So you have this very tight, incestuous, zealous, committed, ideologically, for the most part, I would say, aligned group going against a flabby, moderate majority that is represented by Democrats. It's very hard to organize this multicultural coalition. And it's even harder when the party that is supposed to organize it refuses to, if you will, empower the base, which is people of color, refuses to put their priorities first, refuses to actually listen and acknowledge their problems, keeps punting them to the second because they keep chasing Chet 
and Travis and Amy and Katie who are drinking real coffee in the Rust Belt wearing real hats, even though they haven't gone for Democrats since the 1950s. So that's number one. That's a big problem. Number two, the way the Democrats are built is they bring a pencil to a knife fight and Republicans bring a bazooka. That just, they're, mm-hmm. they're just nerds. They're like, well, if we play by the rules, then maybe, you know, and then and, and, and they don't flex their muscle. That's another thing I'll say is you have power right now. Like, look, yes, it's 50-50. You have the House, barely. You have the Senate, but you have it. And you have Joe Biden. Could you imagine, this is the difference between Democrats and Republicans, and we could talk about this. If Republicans were in control right now and Democrats did all this shady shit, like, like there like would Jennifer be said. no filibuster. <laughs> no filibuster. People would be in jail. Nonstop smear campaigns. Uh, there would be 16, 17 seats on the Supreme Court. 17 seats on the Supreme Court. They'd be friggin', they would, they would, uh, the subpoenas. Uh, they'd be enforcement of the subpoenas. Uh, like, literally, they would, they would beat them down. But Democrats did nothing. Biden and Harris would have been impeached. <laughs> Hillary Clinton would probably be in jail. I'd probably be in jail. Seriously, that this is this isn't funny because it does show you how incapable mm. the Democrats are of understanding the threat we face. As you said, they they need to play by the rules. There are no rules. The rule book was burned to a crisp by the Republican Party. So we need to meet them where they are, which is to be, as you said earlier, an anti-democratic counter-majoritarian party that is looking to um, regain power illegitimately and stay in power, even though they're the minority in this country. I seriously, I think like Mitch McConnell is looking to set up a theocratic apartheid state. Um, And they don't seem to understand how little time we have here. So, you know, I, I, I guess I'm not as interested in why aren't they doing it? Because who knows? I mean, some of what you said, who knows what goes on behind the scenes? Um, is it just because some of them are institutionalists? Some of them, is it collegiality? Like, I almost lost my mind when Joe Biden last week Praised Mitch uh, referred to Mitch McConnell as a man of his word, a man of honor, and his friend. Yeah. Like, okay, this is a man who's out to destroy you, your administration, and the American people, but sure, sure, uh, <laughs> I, you know, with friends like that, as they say. I'm more interested in like, what, what can we do mm. or what should Democrats do in the very little time we yeah. have remaining of American democracy, potentially, before the midterms. So it's, it's, it's what happens is, is that Democrats believe, and you just hear them in their own words, that if you just give in to these, you know, lowercase t terrorists, they'll behave better. You know, yeah. if you give them a column, they'll be better. If you invite them to be a guest, they'll be better. They'll stop complaining. It's like working the refs. The Republicans work the refs. It's all about projection. And if we just mm-hmm. came into them, it will inspire better behavior. But as you accurately said, we're dealing with fascists. It empowers the bullies. And sometimes you have to punch a bully in the face. And what yeah. we've seen is they have weak chins. But we don't punch back. Right? We like go around them. We give them compliments. And another analogy I always give is um, the, the, the peanut cartoon. 
We Are Charlie Brown and They're Lucy. That's right. And you're like, yep. Mitch McConnell, do you promise this time that you're going to abide by the own absurd standard you created to rob us of Merrick Garland? He goes, sure I will. Oh, oh the election has already started and RBG died and millions of people have cast their vote. Are you going to abide by the own standard you created? No, I'm not. Here's Amy Comey. Here's Amy Bird. <laughs> Democrats, now you have a majority. Are you just going to bum rush whatever judge you want because you have every right to and give a middle finger to bad faith Republicans? Uh, no, we have a list of black female Supreme Court justices and we think we're going to get bipartisan. Uh, and I'm sitting there thinking like, who the F cares, man? Who the F cares? Just nominate whoever you want, get them on the court. And so we're dealing with yeah. that Democratic Party, which is a microcosm of every institution that bends the knee and thinks that if we cave in to them and their vaccine mandates and the truckers and the parents and the school boards, that they'll be better. And what you and I have seen and are saying is they will not get better. They will get further empowered. <laughs> they are fascists. They want minority rule for white power. So what we have to do is first recognize it, which I think is very important because I don't think everyone's around to recognize it, Mary. Recognize what we're dealing with. Recognize the threat. Recognize their endgame like a bad James Bond villain, or rather I should say like a very helpful James Bond villain. They're literally telling you the plot in the first 10 minutes of the movie. There's right. a six-point memo they wrote for us. There's a slideshow. They're telling you. The Republicans running for Secretary of State are telling you we're going to reject the, the popular vote and put in our electors and literally do a coup. So take them right. literally and seriously. Now that you've mm-hmm. taken them literally and seriously and you know the threat and you know the plan, you do the counter. The counter is we have to build a multicultural coalition of the willing. You have to unite. You need numbers and we have the numbers. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree with each other on 10 of 10 things, fine. Stop with the purity tests. Liberals are really good at killing other liberals. They, they look for, what do they say? Liberals look for heretics and Republicans look for converts, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If you can align with someone over democracy, and if Liz Cheney, who is odious in her politics, but is willing to help you and the majority carry your water for democracy, build that multicultural coalition. Run, and then final thing I'll say is, and then we could talk about more if we have time, but local, local, local. They're specifically mm-hmm. trying to seed the ground by terrorizing local school boards, local teachers, local healthcare officials. And what happens is people say, I can't deal with this shit, man. I can't have death threats. And they, they come in. We have right. the numbers. When we show up to the school board meetings with numbers, they shut up. When you That's do right. vaccine mandates in New York, they whine, 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 whine. And then what happened today? 99% got the vaccines, only 1%. That's, That's we, right. we need these stories to remind us that we have the numbers and we have the power, but we're a flabby moderate majority dealing with a zealous minority. Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough how much I wish the Democratic Party empowered its base the way the right empowers Absolutely. its white supremacist, racist, fascist, Nazi base, you know? Um, and also, both, and then I want to pivot to your book, um, if you want bipartisanship at this point, then you're making common cause with fascists. Yeah. And we need to stop doing that immediately. Um, and yes, focus, Democrats out there listening, focus on local races, focus on attorneys general races, secretary of state races, school boards, et cetera, because that is actually where the scary stuff is happening. And I think finally we should all agree, as you said, to be one issue voters this time around. We're voting for democracy. Otherwise, we don't get anything. We don't get anything. Can can I say one final thing that Democrats fail at, and and Republicans, Mm -hmm. I give them compliments for? Republicans band down the hatches and circle the the wagons for the most 
extreme freaks. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, yep. Lauren Bubart. Notice they do not condemn them. What do Democrats do? They use the bad faith weapon, weaponized language of Republicans against fellow Democrats. That's right. <laughs> We're too woke. Stop being so woke. Let us kill our own party. And you're like, wow. That's what James Carville did in Virginia. We lost because we're too woke. I'm like, why are you using oh, the bad faith weaponized language of the right wing against fellow Democrats? Why? And it's absurd. <laughs> it's just absurd. Progressives aren't the problem here. No, no. And the reason why they attack progressives, and this is all, you know, I have to say this. I'm sorry. This is all coded language. Woke, progressive is coded language for black people and brown people. That's Stop right. whining and complaining. Darky, be quiet. We have to win an election. We're going to punt immigration reform, police reform, income inequality, BBB second. And your job is just to take it. And so in order to court Chet and Travis and Katie and Amy in the Rust Belt, we will use this language, not realizing we are depressing and hurting our own base and our own party. That's my two cents. Well, you're right. And having written fairly extensively about this, it is something that doesn't that that doesn't get recognized mm. enough on the left because Americans hate being called racist, <laughs> right? They hate it more than anything. anything. Instead of so, instead of recognizing why they might be, and I'm not saying they are racists. Right. That's a different issue. That's a choice. I'm saying racist because it's in our friggin' bones at this point. It's in the <laughs> in the marrow DNA. In the DNA. And unless you face it and deal with it, it's never going away, yeah. right? So, but white Democrats don't like hearing it any more than uh, actual ra- people who choose to be racist. Um, so they're completely blind to it. Mm. And that, to me, is one of the biggest problems. I know it's a long-term solution that would be required that's not going to change overnight but at least some acknowledgement of it would be really nice and it just never happens and it's so i cannot imagine being um a black american a muslim american a native american american that was stupid a native american population as as uh tony morrison once said american means white everybody else is hyphenated sorry about that hyphenating um, any any minority yeah. of color, I cannot imagine stepping up every single election cycle, waiting out eight hours in line, um, you know, having to travel because all of your polling places have been closed. And yet still the Democratic Party takes it for granted that, of course, they're going to show up, even though we've fulfilled none of our promises. They're not going to show up in this um, election. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you talk to black folks and brown folks, they're like, we risked death and stood during a pandemic for eight to 12 hours. Remember that Supreme court was allowed to vote from mail, but then this right wing hackery majority decided, nah, these polls in Wisconsin, they're going to have to show up, but they did. And you won Georgia because of black voters and you won probably even uh, uh, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania and, and, and all these other States because in Michigan, even with a lot of these quote unquote urban centers showing up in big numbers. Right. Uh, But what happens is, we're always told, listen, it's a crisis. The nation is teetering at an edge. We'd love to talk about police reform and immigration reform and income inequality, but next time. 
And 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 yeah. even look, black voters gave Biden his life. Like Clyburn, people forget it. Clyburn came out, and then the South then Absolutely. literally rejuvenated his career because he was losing. At that time, he was losing to everybody. Right? He was losing to Warren. He was losing to yeah. Oh, who, he was fifth or seventh yeah, yeah, or something. Fifth. He was way down. And so, and so you, that's why uh, you, you want to always remind re- Democrats, this is your base. It's a multicultural base. You haven't gone the majority of white voters since the 50s. Majority of white women have not gone for Democratic president since the 50s. They only went once for LBJ and one term of Clinton. Um, you have 85 to 90% black. Uh, you got 70% Asian, 70% Jewish, 70% Muslim. And you got maybe, if you're lucky, 40 to 45% white. That's it. That's your coalition. Get that coalition out, get them in numbers, you win. That's right. And it's it's so um, stupid. <laughs> it's the only word. Uh, or craven and, and insulting. We just need to let them be racist for a little longer. <laughs> no, you know what, then, no, but that's what it is, Mary. Look, it goes back. There's a recurring theme here in this conversation. Don't upset them. Don't rattle them. Do you don't want you don't understand how they'll be when they get angry? And I always joke, and I'm like, you ever seen the movie The Avengers? And then Captain America at the end tells Mark Ruffalo before he turns to Hulk, "All right, time to get angry, big guy." And he turns around, he goes, "Cap, the trick is, I'm always angry." And that's what I want to say is that this right wing base hates you. They hate you. They're that's always right. angry, no matter how much you placate, no matter how much you give them compliments, no matter how much you do bipartisan, no matter how no matter how much you bend the knee. They will try to destroy you politically, economically, when it comes to school boards, when it comes to the media and all of our institutions still believe, Mary, if you're just nice to them and don't trigger their economic anxiety, then they'll be okay. And what it really means, if I may be blunt on your show, is we don't want to piss off white people and talk about racism because it gets them really upset. So listen, Darkie, be quiet just sit there, be nice, talk about diversity and give them Tanahasi and give them Michelle Obama, give them some Beyonce, but don't mention white supremacy. Don't give them Toni Morrison. That's too black. Maybe give them LeBron and, you know, give them crazy rich Asians and then baby steps. We're going to baby step our way towards racial harmony and equality. Well, li- listen, it's only been like 400 years. <laughs> What's the rush? That's what it is. And that's what people <laughs> totally forget about the historical context here. This isn't like we've just been saying, be patient for a couple of election cycles. You know, white people have been doing this since the 17th century in this, in this specific context of uh, enslaving people, black people in America, kidnapping black people to bring to America and, you know, doing that for generation after generation after generation. So this isn't a new thing. We've been asking people of color just to stay in the back of the line forever. Mm. For the betterment of the the country, for the betterment of the country. Yeah, like what? Sure, as long as, as you said, that we're the country means white people. Um, So it's. It, and that's why when um, Biden said that to McConnell, people gave me pushback for being angry about that. No, I was angry said, too. Look, he I was angry he too. has to he has to work with McConnell. Blah, blah. Look, you know, he could have said nothing because that kind of statement, you know how that demoralizes our side? Right. It makes us it just reminds us how ill-equipped or clueless or white 
the, you know, our leaders are that they just don't have the intestinal fortitude to face the facts and to do what's right. And it reminds me how, you know, white people who do the bare minimum always get let off the hook. Remember when McCain was running against Obama and people gave him all of this credit for standing up when that woman accused Barack Obama of being, I don't remember what she was wearing. Okay, she was wearing red, of being a Muslim. John McCain didn't say, so what if he were? Why would that matter? He said, no, no, he's not Muslim. He's a good person. (laughs) But he, he got... Praised like he had done something for, for the rest for of us, right? You know, the, the reason why we say that is because we remember that was like etched in our heads. He goes, "I heard that Muslim he, Obama is a Muslim and an Arab," and he goes, "No, no, he's not Muslim or Arab. He's a good man." And, and, he's a good I, and man. I could see what he was intending, and because the bar was so low and is so low that many of us were Muslim and Arab, we're like, "Well, thank you for at least pushing back uh, in 2010." Well, but at the same time, you're like, he should have said what Colin Powell later said on Meet the Press. So what? If they're Muslim. So what if he's Arab, right? But the bar was so low. And I want to just share with you how radical and extreme the Republican Party has become. I joke about this, but this is a great tell. If George W. Bush, who I think you and me, Mary, were old enough that we would agree before Trump, we would probably say that that was the most, like, just terrible president in U.S. history. My God, he was so terrible. Then Trump comes in and makes George W. Bush's legacy look much better. Uh, If he was to run... For Republican president in 2024, he would be rejected by the party for being a Muslim lover. If John McCain was to run, he would be rejected. Well, that would be weird. Yeah, but like the the spirit of John McCain was resurrected, Ah, right? Okay. Yeah, the 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 the, if it was reanimated like a a Tupac hologram, (laughs) Uh, he you know he would be he would be rejected, right? And so, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, these guys weren't like centrist. They were like right. <laughs> like George W. Bush had a hard right campaign, ladies and gentlemen, helped like usher in the war on terror. Katrina, just disaster, Patriot Act. But because at the very least, they were not overtly racist. And at the very least, they were pushing back against overt racism. That to the modern Republican Party and Stephen Miller is an act of a rhino. And they have no place in the Republican Party to the point where Liz Mother effing Cheney, who used to be the number three ranking Republican, has now been censured by her party and the Wyoming Republicans decided to kick her out uh, uh, of the Republican Party in Wyoming. And now the House Republicans uh, are saying she can't win an election again. They're they're, they're actually going to primary her. This is where we're at. And by the Right. And by the way, Liz Cheney, whose political hero is Genghis Khan, also known (laughs) as Dick Cheney. What? Yes. Yeah. So that pacifist, that centrist pacifist known as Genghis Khan, who was all about democracy while he was pillaging and I, raping nations. Oh, good to know. Yeah. No, it was it's Dick Cheney. I was just. Kidding oh, okay. Well, that's Genghis hilarious. Khan I part. thought you know I actually believed it too. Dick, Dick Cheney because it's believable. <laughs> I can, you know isn't that hilarious? I'm like oh like Liz Cheney one day came out. You know who my political hero is? Genghis Khan. I'm like yeah, <laughs> I believe that. I mean, I mean he was successful. She that, he was successful. She would, she would be forgiven for a lot of things if she said that. I hope you have some time to stick around because yes. I really do want to talk about your book. Yes. Uh, again, it's called Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on Becoming American. I cannot urge you enough to read this book. Um, it blew me away. And I'm going to just embarrass you and tell, no, it's very and tell kind people of you. Very kind why. Of um, it's... 
you know, as I said earlier, you have an extraordinarily uneventful life. So it was really, it must have been so difficult to, to turn it into an interesting narrative. No, seriously, your life story itself is fascinating. Um, your childhood, your family, um, the complications you guys all went through, being a Muslim in America, uh, and as you know, before September 11th, after September 11th, but it's it's incredibly well written. And the thing, one of the things about it, um, is that you find humor where it's almost like you find humor where one shouldn't be able mm. to, you know. And it it helps because uh, a lot of it is hard. You know, it's hard to to take in. Um, and then despite the fact that it's really funny, it's very moving in parts as well. And, you know, there, there are scenes that still just stick with me. And, you know, we're just talking about uh, John McCain and, and how people uh, like Bush and even though they weren't, you can't exactly say they were um, – pro-Muslim. No, uh, no, we're not. No. Uh, But they weren't, they weren't good on the issue. And it was still even, I know that was post uh, September 11th, but it reminded me that this is a longstanding problem. And that one of the scenes in your book that, that really just, just made me so sad. It was the day of September 11th, you and a group you belong to, of other Muslim students were called into, I guess, the dean's office. Chancellor's office. The chancellor's office. And, you know, when I read it, started reading that scene, I thought, oh, okay, good. Like, they're going to ask if you guys are okay. (laughs) And what it did, it reminded me, first of all, how ill-equipped a lot of adults are to deal with um, the trauma of children. Mm. But then it took a turn and really what they wanted to do was make it clear to you that you were suspicious in their eyes and that they didn't necessarily feel like they could trust you because a bunch of maniacs who had nothing to do with you flew two planes into the world Mm. trade center. I I mean, I know it it was, um, there's a lot, much, a, a lot else going on in the book, but that scene sort of crystallized something for me. So, can you talk a little bit about um, how sort of the evolution of your experience as a Muslim American in the sense of <clears throat> the reality that it was yeah. never good, which, yeah, you know, yeah. I think white Americans just, oh, well, you know, just all started after September 11th. No, <laughs> this is not true. No, I appreciate that, and I, and I I thank you for your kind words, and thank you for reading it. Uh, I remember um, when I finished it, and I was supposed to send galleys out. I think I, I I don't know why we had never talked before, but I had been following you on Twitter. I'd read your book. I'm like, I think Mary Trump would like this, and I'm like, let me talk to, let me reach out to her, and you were very kind and actually responded back to me. I was like, oh, look at that. So thank you so much for your support of the book. Don't tell people that it took me much longer than it should have to read. <laughs> but it you now. were very kind. And you kept apologizing, which I appreciated. It reminded me of me. Like, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for everything. I, I promise one day I'll get to it. I swear. I can't breathe. 
I haven't slept in two years. And, and I did. And I felt terrible. <laughs> At least I read it. Yeah, and then and I, was, I being, being the shameless son of immigrants, well, I'm like, well, the door is open, so let me just keep that door open and keep bothering her every two months. Um, you know, the book. Well, I told you to. Yeah, yeah. No, and you, and I you sent gave you me permission. DMs. Please bother me. And you gave me, which was very kind. What the book does, I hope, is it, the book is about how do you love a country that doesn't love you back? And it is an elegy for the rest of us not named J.D. Vance. <laughs> and it, it, and the elegy for the rest of us who, like you said, have uh, a hyphen or an asterisk or are reminded recently by Mitch McConnell that there are Americans, but then there are African-Americans. And how That's this right. country can turn on you on the drop of a dime overnight. And specifically, I tried to connect the dots about this country called America, specifically post 9-11, by, I, I kind of connect the dots historically to how we got to Trump, but through a very culturally specific lens of my, of my story as well, as being the son of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, born and raised in the Bay Area, California. And, you know, what I talk about, and, and I hope people take this away, especially white readers, and so far they seem to be really absorbing it, and the, the feedback has been so lovely, is that when we talk about white supremacy, we're not talking about white people. Let me repeat this. Right. When we talk about white supremacy, which I kind of lovingly call the whiteness uh, in chapter two, is we're not talking about white people, which is a social construct. And even the Irish Catholics were not considered white. Eastern European That's Jews right. were not considered white. The Germans were not considered white, but they eventually were able to be absorbed into this Omicron being whiteness that comes and wants to devour everything. A system. It's a structure. It's a, right. it's a paradigm. It's an ideology that elevates one group and only one group to be the protagonist of the American narrative and says the rest of us, we can be here with conditions. And this book yep. is all about, well, I don't want conditions. I don't want special standards. I want equal standards. And by the way, the only way to stretch and push uh, this country to be the best version of itself or to even achieve the American dream is to have us as co-protagonists. That's the only way this experiment's going to work. Meanwhile, what we're witnessing right now and we, we've talked about it, but I'll just mention it, is the death rattle of white supremacy that, in my opinion, has become the death march. We literally have talked about it for the past hour. And their idea of America is to restrict, restrict, restrict. And so the war on terror could not have happened without anti-black racism. It could not ha have happened without the restrictions on immigration, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which I talk about, right? These forces that have always tried to restrict. Donald Trump would not have happened without the war on terror. And the demonization of Muslims, where America was like, let's lump all these things called Muslims as an other, and they'll be re represented by Osama bin Laden and the 19 foreign hijackers who brought down the two towers. And the first hate crime after 9-11 will be against an innocent sick man with a beard and a turban in Mesa, Arizona, who's a gas station owner because a white supremacist said, I need to get those guys who brought down the towers. Oh, look, a brown guy. Bigots aren't nuanced people. Bigots aren't nuanced. And so what happened to me, very quickly, I was a senior at UC Berkeley, 20 years old, undeclared, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of my life, had the model minority stereotype upbringing, two parents who came here after 1965, they worked hard, Mary, pulled themselves up from the bootstraps, kept quiet, and they were told that the Faustian bargain for this model minority is you will get the American dream, but you have to be invisible. Right? right? So I'm living this dream. I'm the son of this, these two, guy, uh, two parents who've worked hard, and overnight, two towers fall. Fork in the timeline. Pre-9-11, post-9-11. Overnight, Muslims become the boogeyman. Overnight, I become us and them. Overnight, citizen and suspect. And for the next 20 years, my loyalty and patriotism is always held as suspect by a nameless judge during an executioner that has held me guilty for the violent crimes committed by other people I've never met. And I always, like Toni Morrison has said, have to prove 
my civilizational worth and capacity to this nameless judge, jury, and executioner. Prove you have literature. Prove you have culture. Prove you're moderate. And that's why racism is so exhausting because you spend your whole life defending yourself and then you realize it's never enough. And so this book kind of charts how, uh, you know, the rest of us, and me in particular, had the trauma of 9-11 and the war on terror and that, how this impacted the country and how, honestly, that type of accepted Islamophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry literally leads to Trump, ladies and gentlemen. Let's not forget mm-hmm. that he ran on a Muslim ban. That's what gave him a national platform. Ben Carson was the first one to do it. And people thought, oh, my God, there's going to be a backlash. People forget. Ben Carson was the first one to say, I need Muslims to renounce Sharia before I have them in the White House. Right? Going off again, the 2010 anti-Sharia hysteria. He got more crowds. He got huge fundraising. He got a bump. So Donald then, people forget, go look at the clip. At another televised speech, one person yells out, what about the Muslims? He goes, we need to do a complete ban until we figure out what the hell is going on. And then with Anderson right. Cooper, he said, I think Islam hates us. And then he did that nonsense about Muslims celebrating 9-11, right? That's what led him, in part, the racism, that, the xenophobia. I, I wanted to ask you about that because it, it seems like one of the strategies or tactics on the right mm. is to shove the absolute worst person down our That's throats. That's right. So... After we have our first black president, we have to get the most racist white guy Obligatory. out there. Um, and after his egregious lies, and there were many of them about September 11th, we have to get this anti-Muslim bigot who doesn't, by the way, doesn't care. You know, it's not like he was informed about anything no, no. or really thought it was good policy. Bullshit artist. So, yeah, that's being kind, but yes. Um, and a very weak, weak person. I still don't understand why the other Republican nominees, this didn't punch him in the chin. But anyway, we've talked about that. We've talked about it already. And here we are. Because, yeah. you know, why rile yeah. his base? <laughs> but I mean, during the primary, oh, yeah. you know, they just never learned. All you need to do is call him a loser and tell him to shut up. But anyway, so with that aspect, because I took the 2016 election very personally, but for very different I reasons. I wonder why Mary I, Trump. I, I don't know. I'm still working through it <laughs> yeah, in therapy. Um, but it must have felt extraordinarily personal mm, to you, too. Mm. Yeah. I mean, look, if you so you mentioned three things, right? I want to break them down. We talked about this. Donald Trump has an audience. People forget that. Joe Rogan has an audience. The more racist and cruel Donald got, the more popular he became with Republicans. And misogynists. And misogynists and homophobes and anti-Muslim bigots. And the whitewashing of this narrative from media institutions, the inability to look at racism and call it out, which we've talked about. Let me give you another example. Oh, they're suffering from economic anxiety. A refusal to actually look at all the studies that have been done that it conclude that it was the predominant, predominant motivator of right-wing voters for Donald Trump was cultural and racial anxiety. Specifically— And lower-income voters went to, for Hillary yeah, Under 50,000 went for Hillary. No one talks about that. Okay. Sure. And then you sit there and go, okay, 
Huh. Millions of my fellow Americans decided this incompetent vulgarian who ran on a Muslim ban and a wall is the best president after Obama helped save this country from eight years of disaster. From like, I think that the election of Trump after Obama, and specifically, let's not forget, Trump first threw his hat in the ring with the racist, anti-Muslim conspiracy theory of the birther conspiracy. That people right. always forget. You got to connect the dots, which I tried to in the book, right? Yep. Beautiful microcosm of America. Every time there's two steps forward on racial progress and equality, one giant step back. White supremacy comes and chokeholds us back. Donald Trump is the chokehold, in my opinion. So who does America get after Obama? Of course they get Trump, who ran on the birther conspiracy, the Muslim man, and the wall. And I took it super personally because I remember look, talk, the weakness of Democrats. 2016, Democratic National Convention. I'm with Huffington Post covering the convention, right? We're running around trying to do stories. One of the segments that I do is the following, kind of the old school uh, uh, daily show segment, tag in cheek, which turned out really well, where I ask all these voters, uh, Bernie voters, Hillary voters, even Trump voters, uh, will you visit me in the camps if Trump, Trump wins? Kind of dark humor, right? All the white voters, I don't, I don't care if they were Bernie or Clinton or Republican voters, you know what they said? <clears throat> It'll never happen. <clears throat> It'll never, uh. Muslim man will never happen. He won't win. He's just saying it to get voters. I'm like, I think the Muslim man will happen. He goes, no, no, no. None of them took it seriously. The only people who actually took it seriously were black voters. Like, yeah, that might happen. And that shows you the lived experiences of being a person of color versus right. often, not all, white folks, because some white folks got it. That shows you how we take the threat seriously. That shows you how we view Donald Trump's presidency. It wasn't a game. It wasn't a joke. He wasn't funny. And that just goes to show, uh, reveal an earlier point I made, Mary, that if Donald Trump attacked white people the way he attacked Mexicans, black people, refugees, and Muslims, he would never have been elected because we right. would not have ceded the ground to him treated him as a comic foil, helped him, uh, you know, platform him on CNN, invited him to SNL. But because it was the rest of us, it was okay. And that's why I took it personally. And that, that normalization has proved to be so dangerous. And it's still happening. The, the media aren't saying, should Donald even be allowed to run again? <laughs> They're saying... Will he, which implies that he can yeah. because he's done nothing wrong or whatever, or he's above the law or he's so special that we should allow him to pull a Grover Cleveland. Um, so a nice deep cut there with Grover. Well done. Thank well, you. That was, that was good. I, I like to pull That's, out that, my Grover that Cleveland. That is very impressive. I like it. Reference. The, the, kids, are like, the kids are like, what the Grover Cleveland? What's that? Is he a character yeah. on The Muppets? Yeah. He sounds like a Garfield character. Not that Grover. <laughs> right, it's a different Grover. Um, so the problem I find is that so-called Trumpism seems to not, not to need him anymore mm. um, because that's just the Republican Party now. And I don't think he's cha fundamentally changed the Republican Party. He's revealed it to be what it is. But he's also given them this new permission to to be as bad as they want to be in a way that isn't subtle. Yep. Well, I, I, you know, so, I think, and let's. I actually was thinking about this yesterday. I'm really curious about your take because maybe I'm being too cynical. 
I said earlier, just to a friend of mine, that I think by 2024, maybe 2025, the Republican Party will not have to use any dog whistles with white nationalism. Like, I think they can openly run on white power. I thought we'd get there by 2024, 2025. Some people thought I was being too cynical. I've been right about a lot of stuff, if I might pat myself on the back. Um, and I think that's the natural extension. And, and I saw a glimpse of it where Donald, I think was at his last rally, maybe just a few weeks ago, you remember that blatant racist lie where he said that white people are now forced to go to the back to get vaccines? Especially in New York. Yeah, and then, and then, and then Stephen yeah. Miller doubled down on it, this white vic, uh, victimhood, and then Washington Post did a good piece on this, how, and yeah. I've been following the trends where NPR did this uh, poll a couple of years ago where a majority of whites feel like they're the greatest victims, but it was a small majority. I think that number is going to balloon to 60 to 70%. And that's where I, I think we're going to see the emergence of the words literally white power. Am I being too cynical? I don't think it's cynical at all. I think it's realistic. And that that's important. I have um, a final question I'd like to ask. Because oh, I've talked too much. Before that, I've... I've no, no, no. I just... There's so much to talk about. Actually, I wanted to talk more about your story, but there's so much going on right now. There's such urgency mm. in what's happening right now that I wanted your take. I'll have to have you back to talk about no, no. your the arc of your life and your journey because it's so fascinating. But... Today, I really did want your perspective on what's happening Please. now because it's so interesting. You know, you you know your stuff, and um, you don't pull punches. And I'm very tired of people on the left pulling punches. So, um, before I ask you my last question, yeah. I have one other uh, thing that's what uh, that's related to what you were just sure. talking about. I think that. We need to be I, not negative, not cynical. I think cynicism, you know, when I hear people say, oh, well, you know, 2022 is already lost. I'm like, well, okay, yeah, thank, have thank that you, attitude and it useless. will be. <laughs> That's cynical. But facing facts, mm. facing that potential that you mentioned, I, I mean, I, I don't even know that it's going to take that long because it's already happening. Yeah. And because I don't think what happened with critical race theory in Virginia was really a dog whistle um, because it was such a massive lie mm. that was based in in pure racism yeah. um, that I don't know. Um, so I agree with you. Um, so having said all of that, and I don't think we have until 2024 to turn this around, I think we have until November 2022. What are your thoughts about what happens in the next nine or 10 months? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I, look, I, I choose to invest in hope also because I think the alternative is cynicism and apathy. And that basically means that you are resigning yourself to being a spectator and checking out. I can't afford that. I have kids. I got three kids and I'm an American. <laughs> and trust me, as a student of U.S. history, I, I think uh, fascism is worse than democracy, guys. You don't want one to be under yes. the rule of fascism. Yes, fascists fail. But when they fail, eventually, a lot of people die and a lot of people get oppressed yeah. and a lot of people disappear. And I don't use the F word lightly, I, I, but I have been using it. I wrote about it. And the warnings that myself and others have given, we were initially ridiculed and mocked. But I have the receipts. And it's not mm -hmm. because I have this, you know, present foresight or I'm brilliant. No, I just connect the dots and I pay attention. And all you have to do is connect the dots and pay attention and be a student of American history and be aware of the forces that are at play right now and what they're playing for. And what they're playing for is power, power by any means necessary. 
And the ideology that moves many of them, and all the data shows this, is white supremacy, even though they don't admit it or even though they don't even admit it to themselves. This country can mm-hmm. only be a country for a certain segment that has to be at top. It has to be white Christian males. And they are the, either the heroes of this narrative or the victims. They are never the villains. No one's ever the villain of their narrative. If you listen to them, heroes are victims. They're victims because the rest of us, Mary, me, the Jews, black folks, others, are trying to weaken Western civilization and replace them. And they will not be replaced in their homeland, the, the, the land of their father and grandfather who birthed this nation from nothing. That's what we're dealing with. We're, we're very scary. <laughs> yeah. we, we're, we're terrifying. And so what we need and what we want is a multiracial democracy. We're not going to get along. We're not going to agree on everything. But what we say is, that's okay. You live your life. I live my life. And our children have the right to the American dream and the right to achieve it. And so that's what's at stake. And so what I think what's happening in the next nine months is this fundamental fight for our democracy, because my fear is that we're going to lose the House. And historically, that's the trend. And you have gerrymandering, and now you have voter suppression. It seems like we're going to lose the House. It's not a given, but it seems like we're going to lose the House. What also is going to happen, maybe, just maybe, maybe we keep the Senate or we barely lose the Senate, right? And so I think what's going to happen then, what happened with Obama's second term, then the Democrats are going to say, I guess we can't do bipartisanship. I guess I'm going to have to flex my muscle and do this on my, by myself. And so what I want Joe Biden to do and what I want Democrats to do is you have nine months. You can do a lot in nine months. You can flex your muscle. You can flex your power. And I think what you have to do is expose the villainy and extremism of their right wing almost on a daily basis. Television works. Do these hearings televised. Absolutely. Literally, you need the Justice Department to wake up. Merrick Garland has to figuratively crack skulls, figuratively, not literally, for the love of God, police officers. But I mean, you go after these people. Because in the absence of having any accountability— is going to depress the Democratic vote. Why the F do we put you in power? And also is mm-hmm. going to give license to robbers to rob in broad daylight. And they're going to rob us of our democracy. And then I want Joe Biden to hit hard. And I want, I want this also to happen. Last thing I'll say. You have a vice president. Her name is Kamala Harris. She's the first black woman to be elected. Maybe, just maybe, you want to circle the wagons, band out the hatches, applaud her, appraise her, use her, unleash her. Instead, what the Democrats have done, they have already conceded 2024 and thrown Kamala under the bus. <laughs> so maybe just... I have to admit, I forget she exists sometimes. On purpose. And how is that even possible? Because they're like, liability, she's a black woman, we don't want to terrify people. I'm like, learn from Republicans. What I said, and people laughed at me, I said, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be the base of the party. Look what they've done. They've rallied around an anti-Semitic, violent, conspiracy theorist nut. Can you, at the very least, unleash the two people that 81 million people came out to vote for during a pandemic? Unleash them, build a multicultural narrative, you still have a shot, and flux your muscle. That's what I want to see in the next nine months. Or else it's a wrap. Yeah. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. Okay, final question. Uh, You sort of anticipated it, um, but because we're almost always talking about pretty heavy stuff on the show, because there's a lot... Mm going on that's challenging, mm. to say the least. Um, I'd like to ask you, what gives you hope and how do you hang on to it despite all of the horrors? Yeah, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, the last chapter in the book actually is called Invest in Hope, but Tie Your Camel First. 
which is uh, based off a saying, a Muslim saying, which is lovely, that says, yeah, have faith in God, but tie your camel first, which means have faith, but that's not enough. You have to exhaust all of your efforts, whatever you are capable of doing by your own two hands to fix your situation. And then after you've done that, leave faith in God, a loving God, and have hope that inshallah, once the page turns, it brings with it a better story. And the way I personalize it in the, in, the, in the book and even in my life and in answering your question is the only alternative to hope, if you're saying don't have hope, you're telling me to invest in apathy. You're telling me to invest in cynicism, which is cheap and lazy. And right next to me right now, as you can see, Mary, maybe a little bit, is my daughter doing virtual school, wearing a, a bow tie in her hair, wearing a dress, one of her three costume changes. She's five years old. And she's virtual schooled because she's immunosuppressed. Because at the start of the pandemic, about eight months before the pandemic, she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer and needed a full liver transplant. Lo and behold, yesterday was National Donors Day. And after doing a story and a call out, over 500 people stepped up to be an anonymous donor. Many people who didn't even know me. Some of those people were conservatives who emailed me and said, we hate your politics, but we want to save this daughter. And it reminded me that Sometimes people can do good. Some people can change. Some people want to do good sometimes, right? And this girl who was not supposed to live is alive now because of a full liver transplant given by an anonymous donor who's now, you know, he named himself Sean Zahir, who just happened to live close by. He gave, he was anonymous when he gave the liver. Uh, and it was after the transplant where I, I got to meet him. And he's doing better and she's alive. And so the narratives that I had in my head during this bleak moment, these, this crisis of eight months was the data the numbers, the facts, they pointed to this girl not surviving. And I imagine these narratives in my head, Mary, every day as the father after my family went to sleep because I had to prepare myself emotionally. I'm like, I imagine myself burying my daughter. I imagine myself living a life without my daughter. I imagine myself making the phone calls to her grandparents. And I had to just steal myself for that tragedy. But then I also imagined this story where maybe, just maybe, miraculously, we'll get a liver donor and she'll live and I'll be at her wedding. And that's the narrative I chose to invest in and to work in. And so lo and behold, there's this little girl chirping and prancing around next door who's alive and well. And so that's why I cannot give up on hope. How can I? When people say you, you right. can't have hope, I'm like, I got hope right next to, right next to me. Yeah. And so I know I personalized it, but that's what gives me hope in America because there's so many of us who have yet to achieve the American dream, but we're still striving for it. And we have the numbers and we've come so far. And I refuse to let this American dream, this myth, if you will, be hijacked by a radicalized extremist minority that denies my children that right. So I will fight for my kids. I will fight for your kids. And at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. If I got to go down, I'm going to go down fighting. But I don't think we'll go down. I think we have the numbers. And I still think there's a happy ending here, eventually, inshallah. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Um, it gives me hope. To hear you talk about that, um, Wajad Ali, thank you. It's been such a pleasure, such an honor to get to speak to you at length. Um, I love your fight uh, and your realistic take on what we're facing right now. Um, everybody go out, buy his book, go back to where you came from. It's phenomenal. Um and it will also make you laugh, which we really need <laughs> right now. So, Waj, thank you again so much. Uh, this has been fantastic. No, honor, really honor to it. share the space with you, honor to finally talk to you at length. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to punch the bully in the mouth. Anytime. <laughs>
Thanks. Now I get to answer your questions, which is one of my favorite things because I love hearing from you guys. If you have anything you'd like to ask me for next week's show, you can email me at mary at politicon.com. First question is from Mark in the Commonwealth of Dominica. Would you agree that racism is at the root of everything that is driving the Republican cult? Uh, I think that racism is at the root of all of America's problems, quite honestly. Um, I wrote a book about it that was published in August called The Reckoning, and we have a long way to go before we solve those problems to the extent that they can be solved. The problem is that the longer um, racism and white supremacy have been allowed to go on as sort of the default in this country, the more the right has been able to legitimize it and one thing Donald did was he gave them permission to make their racism overt. You know, they're not dog whistling anymore. They're just being blatantly racist. And, and we see this with, you know, a lot of people on the right are complaining that Joe Rogan apologized for using the N-word. Uh, so that having been said, though, I think there is one other thing that is propelling the right in the dangerous direction it's going in, and that's raw power. Um, their agenda right now is to regain power, no matter how illegitimately, and to stay in power even though they're the minority. So I think both of those things are going on. Uh, from Ryan in the UK, even if Joe Biden were reelected. It's going to take more than eight years to solve the USA's many festering issues and more than one president to get America out of its current situation. I wanted to ask for your thoughts on this. Would you agree with my above observation? Yeah, I would. I think we need at least 16 years of Democrats in power and not just in power the way they are now. We need much larger margins in the House of Representatives and in the Senate uh, so that the next three, two, three, four Democratic presidents are supported and are going to be able to get the kinds of judges they want and the kinds of legislation they want. So that would also give us almost two decades for the Republican Party to get its act together. Because if there are any decent Republicans left, what they need to do is dismantle this party burn it to the ground and start from scratch. And that's going to take some time. Uh, I've had two similar questions from both Micheline and Heidi in Singapore. It's reported that the Canadian truck convoys are funded and coordinated by the global far right to disrupt consumer and military supply lines to hinder a NATO response to both Putin's aggression in the Ukraine, sorry, in Ukraine and a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Thoughts? Um, I, I have no doubt in my mind that these are astroturfs. These are not, this is not a grassroots movement. Um, it's something that started on Facebook and was um, manipulated by the right in America, um, particularly on Fox News. It's possible 
that it was uh, specifically to interfere. I don't know about NATO necessarily, but um, the Biden administration's ability to respond effectively. But I think it was a, a more general attempt to disrupt America's economy and use that as just another thing against Biden, you know, to make people, it's the same thing they've done with COVID, right? The numbers, the COVID numbers in terms of deaths were worse in 2021 than they were in 2020, in 2020. Um, And that's being used to blame Biden. But of course, it's absurd. The reason the numbers are worse in 2021 is because of what happened in 2020. You know, uh, vaccine hesitance, vaccine refusal, um, refusal to take any measures to protect people from COVID. So I think it was more that, um, you know, things like that have been used effectively to take governments down. And uh, I'm a little curious why it took Canada so long to respond, but um, hopefully that situation is being diffused. But it, it could have it could have been uh, quite bad, especially if it had spread here, which was clearly the intention of the right. From Angela in Chicago, which is in Illinois. How worried should we be about a Donald version 2.0? Someone with Donald's charisma, for lack of a better word, with his qualities that made him successful in the Republican Party and with brains. I think we should continue to be worried about Donald. Um, Probably the only good news right now is that there is nobody in the Republican Party who can replicate what Donald's done. Charisma is exactly the right word. He is charismatic. Um, It's hard for me to say that because I don't like to give him credit for anything. But if you met him, you would understand that there is that thing there um, that appeals to clearly tens of millions of people in this country. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, they don't have that. They don't have any of that. Donald's children don't have that. Um, They don't have four decades of myth-making by American media. They don't have um, NBC elevating this failed businessman so um, people... Um, outside of New York came to believe this total falsehood that he was a great success. You know, they don't have that. Um, so I'm sure that's what they're gunning for. Um, you know, probably the, the person who comes closest is DeSantis, but I, he doesn't have any charisma either. They are all smarter than Donald, but I, that's, that's not going to be enough um, to to make a difference. Um, but, uh, I don't know if we're going to have to worry about that anytime soon. From, uh, Barbara in Jenkins Township, Pennsylvania. Do you think it's possible Garland is just giving Donald enough rope to hang himself? (sighs) Um, I don't think it's possible to know anything (laughs) that Merrick Garland is thinking or doing because he's not telling us. 
And that, in my mind, is one of his biggest failures. We deserve to know. We deserve transparency from this department that was so broken uh, in the during the Trump administration. First by Jeff Sessions, then the middle guy who sold toilets <laughs> seems to be a theme, and um, then of course the worst of them, Bill Barr. Uh, so. In order to get people to trust the Justice Department again, we should know at least something. You know, what, what, is, he, what is he thinking about certain things? Um, I know there's a lot that can't be said, and that's fine. But to, to be told nothing day after day, week after week, is pretty demoralizing. So there, I have no idea. I don't know if um, Merrick Garland is going to prosecute anybody for what happened on January 6th. I don't know. Uh, I mean, anybody any elected officials. Um, I don't know. So hopefully we will get more information because the silence is, is kind of maddening. So that's it for this show. I'm so grateful that you were here today. And again, if you have any questions for me, you can send them to mary at politicon.com. And please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, except Spotify. And give us a five-star review because uh, we still took a hit from all of Rogan's Dude Bros. And more than that, it, it really does help people find the show. And you can now watch us on YouTube. So subscribe there. And don't forget to click on the bell because that way you will be notified every time a new show gets released. So thank you again for being here. I really look forward to seeing you again next week. Stay safe. <laughs>